You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for tuning in to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight's show I'm out and about at Taste of Dublin and the Organic College in Drumcollar, County Limerick. And in between that, I'll have on the phone J.R.L. from Ballymaloo, who shared that great almond tart recipe last week. And I'll also be talking to Chef Gary O'Hanlon from Viewmount House in Longford. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. We're well in the flow of festival season at the moment and Taste of Dublin's Avril Bannerton was on the show a few weeks ago telling us what we could expect if we went along to Ivy Gardens. Well, I took a spin-up on the Saturday that the festival was on and after the drive from County Limerick, sure all I wanted was a cup of tea and as luck would have it, Barry's tea was there right in front front of me when I walked in the gate and they had teamed up with chapter one. Darren the pastry chef was all set to talk to me but then head honcho Ross Lewis who has a soft spot for West Limerick having enjoyed a trip here to Westfest in 2012 turned up and I was thrilled to talk to him about the Barry's Tea chapter one collaboration. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ross, we're here at Taste of Dublin. Last year you had a collaboration with Pink Lady Apples and this year it's Barry's Tea. Oh, Barry's Tea this year, sure, it's the finest tea in Ireland. <laughs> um, so that was a great challenge. The um, kind of theme was last year was apples, so this year it's tea. So we've uh, managed to um, create four desserts, um, all incorporated different teas from Barry's, from the, their gold blend to loose leaf to the green tea. and. Uh, We've come up with uh, our own chapter one versions of um, tea-inspired and flavoured desserts. So um, they seem to be going down reasonably well so far. And uh, I think uh, my pastry chef here, Darren, he's a very talented young man, and uh, I think uh, he's done a great job. You can, you know, you can taste the confectionery, you can taste the tea, and. Uh, you know, it does what it says in the tin, so it's a bit unusual, but it's different. So how does a collaboration like this work? Barry's Tea team up with you and you sit down with Darren, the pastry chef, and you come up with a few ideas. He puts a few suggestions to you and you say yay or nay. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we said, look, send all your teas in. So we took the, the whole variety of teas they have and, uh, you know, we then play around with what flavours work with each type of tea. Uh, the nice thing about tea, uh, you know, what we do is you, know, you stew some of them because you get ni- nice strong tannins out of it, you know. And tannins are one of the, you know, is a bitter flavour and bitter is one of the five flavours. So, you know, then you have, you know, sweet and, uh, you know, some, some acidic flavours and lemon creams and things like that. So we're able to kind of just blend as we do any other uh, dishes in Chapter 1 where you're playing with your, your five flavours. So... You have, you know, the tannins from the tea, or you know, and, and they're a nice thing to put into dessert. Actually, you know, it works really well. No pastry counter would be complete without a chocolate eclair, and this looks like a particularly delicious one that you have. Oh yeah, this is our showstopper here. I can tell you, um, we have an eclair with a, a mocha chocolate uh, glaze, and uh, we have a chamomile tea cream. So if you just imagine crunching into that you have the flavor of the chocolate you have the creamy flavor the chamomile flavor um just it's wonderful stuff now before i leave you today i must ask you about your new venture in dublin the new italian restaurant that you have yeah we uh, decided to put our our toe into the middle market and uh we have a venue over in grand canal and clan william terrace it was the old bridge bar and grill and it's uh, pizza and pasta. Um, I have a friend in Italy called Luciano Tona. He's a master chef over there, and he's been collaborating with me and sending over some chefs. So there's a collaboration, effectively, between an Irish and Italian chef cooking in Italian style, using the very best of Irish produce. Um, it's middle market, um, nice, flavorful food, um, and we really hope to uh, just improve it and improve it. It's the start of a journey. So that was the start of my Taste of Dublin journey and having enjoyed one of the show-stopping eclairs with a lovely cup of Barry's tea, my next port of call was to sample some Northern Irish gin with short cross gins, Nicholas Spires. Well, it was World Gin Day. 
Nicola, you're serving up short crust in to the customers here at Taste of Dublin today. Tell me how you're presenting it. Okay, well, we're actually celebrating World Gin today. So it is summer of short crust. So we're doing three different serves today. Um, we are serving the winning serve from Muriel's Cafe Bar in Belfast, which is mint, elderly tonic and orange zest. We're serving pink grapefruit and basil and we're serving kumquat and rosemary. And they're all served with short crust gin and fever tree tonic. And what is so, so what is so unique about short cross gin? Well, short cross gin is one of very few gins distilled in Ireland. We are distilled in Downpatrick in County Down. Um, we're actually the most awarded Irish gin, and we've just won a silver medal in the San Francisco Spirit Awards. Um, we're a little bit different than other gins. We're unique in that we're a classical, contemporary style of gin, and we forage botanicals at Redemon Estate. So the likes of wild clover, elderflowers are all handpicked and distilled into our gin. Um, we hand bottle, we hand label each batch number is signed on the back of the short cross penny in the bottle so every bottle is unique and how did Lady Shortcross Gin come up with this idea? Um, Fiona has always loved gin. It's been her absolute passion. Um, she and her husband David identified a massive gap in the market. We feel that we have every resource here that we need to make a fantastic product. And after loads of research and kind of a lot of late nights experimentation, they came up with the Shortcross brand, the, the gin. And um, we just really felt that we're doing something amazing here in Ireland and we want to shout about it. What is gin made from? Gin is predominantly made from, um, you take a neutral grain spirit, um, which is essentially the base of vodka. Um, what you then do is distill it with different botanicals. So the key botanical is juniper berries. Um, that's the only kind of legal requirement to make a gin. And it also has to be above 37.5% ABV. We distill with seven other key botanicals. So we use coriander, lemon peel, orange peel, cinnamon and cassia. Um, we use elderflowers, elderberries. And as I said, we forage some botanicals as well. So the wild clover. Is it widely available throughout Ireland or where yes, can people get absolutely. it? absolutely. Um, well, we've just celebrated our first year and we are now very much moving into the, the south of Ireland. We're stocked in Celtic Whiskey Shop, we're stocked in O'Brien's, we've just been taken into Dublin Airport, we're in Donnybrook Fair and loads of independent off-licences across Ireland. And if people want to find out more, where is the best place for them to go? They can come directly to us, we're online. Um, Twitter's a really big resource for us, but um, all of our information's online. Pick up the phone, call us, happy to talk to anyone. Um, we are www.shortcrossgen.com. Well, Nicola, congratulations on your first year of business and I look forward to trying it. Thank you very much. Cheers. Happy World Gin Day. And what a happy World Gin Day it was for me when Fiona, a.k.a. Lady of Gin, served me up a short cross gin with fever tree tonic and basil and grapefruit. It was exquisite. I highly recommend it. And let's just say there's going to be one happy camper in the Noonan household in the next month or so when they get a gin-tastic birthday present. But shush, don't say anything. So by this stage at Taste of Dublin, I'd had tea and an eclair and some gin. So it was time for a sit down with some pals to relax. But before I got a chance to do that, I came upon one of Ireland's best known restaurant managers, the lovely Declan Maxwell. So who better to ask what makes Taste of Dublin so unique? Well, this year it's the 10th anniversary of Taste. I mean, when it started first back in Dublin Castle, it was a small little event with, with, with a few restaurants. I think it was eight, and now it's up into nearly 30. And, and the amount of people coming in, just the whole atmosphere here, and to be able to sample some people who wouldn't maybe go to certain restaurants, to be able to sample little tastes of the food from, from restaurants. Um, then they also lovely tutored wine tastings. Then you have a lot of little artisan producers and people with new products who want to, to get themselves out there. I mean, this weekend uh, for the four days in Ivy Gardens, I think it's 30,000 people that are coming over the weekend. Um, there's just the whole atmosphere here is really, really good, I have to say. When it started 10 years ago, when you first heard about it, what were your initial impressions? Did somebody have to do the hard sell to encourage you to come along? I presume you were chapter one at the time. Yeah, I mean, Avril Bannington, who who runs the festival, she came to Ross Lewis first, and Ross Lewis was the first one. Chapter one was the first restaurant that she came to, and she spoke an awful lot of Ross, and actually on Thursday when we were doing the, the, the opening ceremony, in her speech she had mentioned Ross Lewis because he was the first restaurant to come to. And it was a smaller venue, Dublin Castle. And it was a bit sceptical because you thought 10 years ago, Ireland was still in a bit of the boom, but it was coming down a little bit. And you think charging people to come into a venue 
and then for to pay for food. But it was a huge success straight away on the first one, which then moved to the Ivy Gardens, where it has been for the last nine years, which is a bigger venue. And it's got bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes on. And it, it, it's, 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 a great, it's a great idea. And, I mean, taste is everywhere now. You've tasted in London, you've tasted in Sydney. So it's great that Dublin is on an international market. And, I mean, this weekend you have the, the football match on, a lot of Scottish, UK people over. And the last two days we've had an awful lot of them in, which they have been saying, it's a great thing to do in the afternoon for them in Dublin and it's great to see that these restaurants they wouldn't get a chance to go to over the weekend able to show their wares your work and yourself in the champagne tent there's no better place to work I'd say it must be a great way to catch up with people that you maybe haven't seen in a while yeah Tat and Jay have sponsored the VIP tent and then you have the Exchequer bar as well and it, it's great because it's not even with a VIP tent it, it's it's just it's a great atmosphere in here and people are popping in and out and then you've just eat.ie have their waiters here to get people's food so they don't have to go out if they don't want and they can sample some of the stuff from the different restaurants like Ananda and Co but the atmosphere is great because it's like being at a a big wedding or somebody's big 50th birthday because it turns out because Dublin is small and Ireland is small and everybody knows one another and it's great whether it be in the catering industry music film fashion TV we all know one another and it's a great buzz here in Ireland Tell me what famous people have been here over the past couple of days Famous people over the weekend. We have uh, Jennifer McGuire, Lorraine Keane, Brendan O'Connor, uh, Lisa Fitzpatrick, Andrea Roach, um, and then a lot of the catering people. Michelle Rue was here on Thursday and Friday, Michelle Rue Jr., and he was such a gentleman, him and his wife. And he was so, everybody who met him here or approached him to talk to him or photographs, he was so pleasant. I mean, he was here two hours and people just kept coming up, talking and talking, asking for photographs. The nicest, pleasant man. Give that man a medal because he's blew every myth out about chefs. Because all the people are going, oh my God, he's so nice for a chef. <laughs> and have you had a chance to get to try any of the, the food yourself? Yeah, I've been to Pichet Stand and I had their dessert, the Snickers Semi Fredo, which was really, really good. Rock Lobster's uh, Lobster Roll is amazing I've heard that from a few people that was really really good Um, then I had Ananda's lamb curry with their with their pancake which was very very good as well when they were the only things that I had to try so far I have I have another two days tomorrow is my day Sunday to do all that yeah 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 so that's perfect I'm sure it's a tiring experience for you although very enjoyable it's it's fun for me it's fun for me I know it is very tiring but the staff that are here are absolutely amazing and even all the people are saying it. there's young boys and girls working here and they don't necessarily work in the hospitality industry they're students and they're this and they're here for the weekend working for taste and they're absolutely amazing well i can certainly vouch for that the hospitality has been fabulous and thanks very much for talking to me no problem it's a pleasure we'll talk to you soon thanks and then to finish off my day i was treated to a lovely lunch in the aldi chalet we'll call it gary o'hanlon was the chef heading up the kitchen and i'll be talking to gary on the phone later on in the show as he was missing in action on saturday afternoon somebody got married in viewmont house and of course the head honcho had to be there Next, though, on the phone, I have J.R. Rial, who is the pastry chef at Ballymaloo House in County Cork. Last week, we heard from him briefly when he shared a great almond tart recipe. But tonight, we're going to find out a bit more about the man himself. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. JR, it's great to have you back on the show this evening. You were here last week and you had a lovely recipe for us, which I hope lots of the listeners tried out at home for Father's Day. But tonight we're going to talk a bit about you so people can get to know a bit more about JR Royal, who is the pastry chef at Ballymaloo. Yes, uh, thanks for having me on the show, Sharon. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I've been here now in Ballymaloo since I was 15, um, which isn't uncommon in Ballymaloo. A lot of people start here... Um, very young when they're enthusiastic about food it's it's one of the places in Ireland you'll have heard about when you're a kid whether it's from having um, uh, food heroes like Dorina or Myrtle or, or just maybe you've eaten here and um, it always appealed to me and I was very fortunate to be able to get into the kitchen in those early years and um, I've always stayed 
you live in or you came from the and grew up in the area, the general area that um, is not far away. I grew up in North County Cork, um, between the towns of Fromoy and Mallow. I grew up in a small little farm. Um, and I ended up coming to Ballymaloo because an aunt of mine worked at the cookery school. And during summer holidays, um, I went to boarding school in Middleton as well, which is the nearest town to Ballymaloo. So during some of my summer holidays from school, I'd stay with my aunt for a week or two and I'd pot around the kitchens in Ballymaloo because she'd bring me into work with her. And from there, I got to know the team and then, you know, the rest kind of came along after that. Whenever you say you started there at 15, you make it sound very much like child labour, but that was a part-time job and you did your leave insert and you went to Trinity. I did, yeah. Well, I started at 15, but um, I was doing work experience at the beginning, so I'd come in and I'd be shown how to dip a truffle into chocolate or, you know, the correct way of peeling an apple, all the really important techniques that you can then build on. So I was doing simple jobs, but things that to me were important at the time and gave me a sense of... um, to feel that I was part of the team. And then when I was 16, I got offered a Saturday job. So then I was really a member of the staff here. So for the beginning, it was was more just allowing me access to what was going on. And then when I was finishing school, I had been working in Ballymaloo for over two years at that point. So I thought I'd look a little outside of the box. Um, None of the culinary programs in Ireland appealed to my own food interest, even though they were very good courses. And having worked in Ballymaloo, it wasn't so obvious to do the course here because I'd been exposed to a lot of it. So I thought I'd do something different. And um, I was good at science. So yeah, I studied science for four years in Trinity. Um, And for my last two years, I majored in biochemistry because I just found it particularly interesting. But for anyone listening who's thinking of being a chef, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as the route of entry. But you got the whole student experience, I suppose, going to Trinity and living up I, in Dublin. Did you I still did. come back to Ballymaloo to work at the weekends? Um, I used to come back for my summer holidays. And, you know, it's just like you said, that's exactly why I wanted to move to Dublin. I wanted to get the student experience. So I had been in school. I, I had an insight into what the real working world was like by having my job in Ballymaloo on a Saturday working through the summer holidays so I kind of thought this is a really great opportunity to move away from home a little bit do something new you know live live outside of the bubble that I grew up in um, but I did I came back to Ballymaloo every summer so for the busy summer season when you know things are really running at at high speed and I joined the team and I, I just I used to love it I actually used to treat a college kind of like my holiday and I treat Ballymaloo like my actual career that I was pursuing so a bit different to my classmates you have been there now working in a full-time capacity since 2010. Yeah, exactly. I graduated in um, 2010. I finished my last exam, actually probably just a few weeks ago, five years ago. And um, three days after my last final, I came back to Ballymaloo uh, to take up the job because it was the start of the summer season and, and they, needed, uh, they needed all of the staff to come back for that that busy week and uh, so I was one of those as well and ever since I've been here full time now. And pastry is your area of expertise? It is well when you want to cook when you're a kid and you're at home and you're asking your parents or your guardians to buy ingredients to you it's much easier for them to buy butter and sugar and flour than to buy beef and chicken and turkey Um, and it's more affordable so when I was cooking as a kid I was always practicing biscuits and sponge cakes and meringues and things that were doable you know that would keep so we could give them around to the neighbours and friends or the family who called in. So when I was at the stage of coming to Ballymaloo, I had practised more sweet things than savoury. So it was an obvious step for me to find my space in the pastry team here. And I, I just loved it. You know, I had some great mentors, uh, some tough days as well. You know, sometimes you do something wrong and you'd have to learn a lesson from it. But uh, kind of it's all character building. And yeah, so I've always been part of the pastry team. It was always what I wanted, really. Now, isn't it a bit ironic that your degree is specialising in biochemistry, which is a science, and they do say that pastry making and baking, there is more science to that than there is in general cooking, that you need to be very specific with your measurements and your ingredients? For some things, definitely. And in Ballymaloo, we source the best ingredients we can, and most of them are Irish, um, anywhere that that's possible. And because we source really good ingredients, they also come at quite a high price. Um, because we like to pay everyone fairly who produces the goods for us. And when you're using expensive ingredients, you can't waste them. So we do take a lot of care in measuring everything very carefully because we don't want to spoil any of the dishes and risk not being able to eat the, the beautiful food at the end. So it is good to have a slight science discipline to you. You know, you can measure volumes accurately, weigh things out carefully, 
think of the method. And, and it, is, it is great. Now, in saying that, biochemistry might be a, a step too far on the ladder when you're, uh, when you're trying to make a sponge cake, but uh, it, it, wasn't a bad, it wasn't a bad grounding. Some people might say you've worked there in Ballymaloo during your school holidays and whenever you were at university and now you're there full time that you might think, God, do you not want to go and see other parts of the world? But I would imagine the job that you have in Ballymaloo does take you to other parts of the world. It does. And, you know, food is an international language and you can go to any country and you can eat the local food when you may not be able to speak the local language. So it, it is, it's a great career to be in when you want to move around. And I usually take two months at the start of every year when Ballymaloo is very quiet um, and take a break. And I usually go sort of as far as I can, far away as I can get to see new culture and taste the food. So I can give you a good example. This year I went to uh, South America and Mexico, and I also hit New York City and New Orleans, and mainly with the purpose of personal food research. So I'd try and find interesting local people and cook and eat with them. And um, I had one amazing experience. I went up a mountain in Mexico, in a part of Mexico called Michoacan, to a 92-year-old woman whose name is Diana Kennedy. And originally she's a British expat, but she's remarkable. She spent the last half century of her life, um, bearing in mind that she was a kid nearly 100 years ago, you know, the knowledge she can call on. Um, and she spent the last half century of her life uh, comprehensively traveling through the most dangerous parts of Mexico with a sleeping bag in her car, and she'd document all of the things that the local women were doing, um, the sort of chilies they were using, the way they would grind things down, the corn that was growing. So I spent a week with her in her house cooking uh, these beautiful dishes that she had learned uh, over the decades. And then when I come back to Ireland, it's not that I try to replicate it, but you have a new appreciation for what you have in your home as well. And you realize that everywhere you go, there's something authentic and there's something beautiful about that. So I do travel around a lot. But I do appreciate what we have here as well. So it's, it's great then to come back, you know, into what we've got and to, um, to really enjoy it. I haven't met Diana, um, but I heard wonderful things about her from Ballymaloo Lit Fest last year. She really was the star attraction in her leather trousers. Oh, she was. She is a rock star and feisty. She drives this truck around her local village at 92 years old. And it's kind of funny, all the people who live there, they know she's famous, but they don't know why. Um, because they, they sort of, you know, they know her character and who she is, but they don't realize the impact she's had on the English-speaking world. But um, yes, indeed, she's at Litfest. So uh, for the last three years now, Ballymaloo have held this wonderful festival um, of food and wine. It's an international literary festival. And the purpose is to invite friends and um, food heroes from around the world and drink heroes to come to the farm for a weekend. And there's this great cross-pollination where everyone shares their knowledge and we have great events like tastings and meals, pop-up dinners, um, demonstrations, talks, debates, you, you know, you name it, it's there. And last year, Diana was one of the speakers, and my God, she just blew us away. She'd get up at 7 a.m. to have a five-mile walk before she'd go into her event to talk, and she'd tell you that's what's keeping her young. My God, it is. She'd put us to shame. Uh, it was, yeah, really, meeting her was uh, one of those life-changing things. Who else in the culinary world do you really admire? Oh, I have uh, quite a few people who've uh, really influenced me. Um, well, I must mention Myrtle Allen. I know I've talked about Ballymaloon now at length, but she um, just her, her eccentric vision of what's correct really, I found, contagious. The way she could always nurture the best out of something when a lot of other people may not have seen it. And uh, that really influenced me in my early days when I was cooking with her here at Ballymaloo. But other people I really, really admire... Uh, there's a baker in San Francisco called Chad Robertson, and he's an amazing bakery called Tartine, and they make the most fantastic sourdough bread. So they ferment the dough naturally and uh, make these really wet doughs, but it's just incredible. You know, you sort of, you wonder where you've been until you've eaten this, and as soon as you've eaten it, it becomes your benchmark for bread in the world. And um, I, I, I went and worked there for two weeks, and it, it really was another one of those things I, I really admire how he's pioneering what he does. Uh, he would totally be one of my food heroes. And then I have many other favorite cooks. Um, like I, I love Sky Gingle in London. I think her food is just breathtaking. And Roy O'Connell, who was the head chef in Ballymaloo when I started, who offered me my first job, um, the, the food he cooks is, is just so wonderful as well. So I've, and many others, but they would be some of my top picks, definitely. 
whenever you talk about going away for two weeks and working here, there and everywhere, it sounds like you have an incredible work ethic that every moment of free time that you have, you're immersing yourself in, in improving and learning your, improving your culinary skills. Well, I, I try to. When, so when I was 18 and I was leaving school um, and I was deciding to go to, to college, I wasn't quite sure what the right decision was and, and no one at that age knows and you know even now I still don't really know what the next right decision is but I was talking to my manager and she knew me well at that stage and she's, she's very very hazel she's very good at, at drawing the best out of people and she said to me that I had the potential to have a good career in hospitality she she thought that and she said to me that if you're going to be successful though um, you have to accept that your work life and social life will probably be the same thing and so I decided to take that on board. So instead of living for my Friday evening when I could clock off work, I just decided going into work should give me as much satisfaction as leaving work. And when you apply that, you suddenly realize how many open doors there are to enjoy yourself in other people's lives for they're doing something they're passionate about. So for me, I, I, just, I get such a thrill out of packing a picnic, getting on a plane, turning up somewhere new and you know going into a kitchen chat and talk to people and listen to why they're doing something where they're doing it you know and whilst you know you could call it work it's just so much fun it's everything but work you know it's just uh it just pays off so much it's great i love it well, before you go, JR, there's probably lots of students around the country that are finishing off exams they're going to be off for the summer now before they head away to do whatever they're going to do. If any of them are looking at a career in the hospitality world, what is the the piece of advice that you would offer to them? Um, well, it's, it's always good to read what's out there. You know, you can read the books that are um, on the shelves and see what the new trends in food are. And if some of them you'll identify with them, some of them you won't. You know, you might suddenly realise that Middle Eastern food is something that really inspires you or maybe the tradi- traditional pastry arts like it was for me. And then you can find out who the people are who are really cutting edge and contact them and, you know, go and eat in their restaurants, see what's going on and, you know, get a feel for what's going on in the food world. And then that'll definitely help you decide what avenue to go down. And um, But, it, you know, it's your summer holidays. Have, I hope everyone has a great time before they knuckle down to college or go job hunting. Um, but, you know, we're in Ireland. Hopefully it's going to be sunny. So we should all eat lots of lovely Irish food as well and enjoy being at home with our families. JR, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy kitchen to come on to the show. And I hope you'll come back on again and, and keep sharing some recipes with us in the future. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. It's a pleasure to come on. Uh, lovely to talk to you this evening. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. If you've just joined us, the first part of the show this evening focused on Taste of Dublin, which was on a few weeks ago in Ivy Gardens. And I was also chatting to J.R. Rial, who is the pastry chef at Ballymaloo House in County Cork. J.R. mentioned the wonderful place that Ballymaloo is. And of course, there's so much produce grown there and nearby the studios here in Newcastle West. We're blessed with the Organic College. Sinead Neeland usually comes into the studio but I felt it was time when the weather was kind of on my side to pay a visit and have a tour of the grounds. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Sinead, it's lovely to be here out in the Organic College just outside Drumcollar in County Limerick and something that has struck me today as you showed me around is about the flowering aspect of food that you have to be very careful sometimes that, yes, a vegetable has to flower before you harvest it, or if it has flowered, then it's too late to harvest it. So let's talk first about the strawberries that I saw. Yeah, they're the, I mean, the flower, the strawberries, for us, the strawberries is the fruit, the really nice, tasty bit we want. But for the plant's point of view, it's actually what holds the seed. So it's the flower gets pollinated and then swells to produce the seed container, pod, whatever you want to call it. With strawberries, the seeds are the pips on the outside. Um, so we do, we need it to flower and we that's how we get the fruit from it. So it's very important that it flowers well. And as you saw, there's loads of flowers on the plants and all we need now is a bit of heat and sun for the fruit to start to ripen. I was surprised to see them outside of the polytunnel. 
Uh, we always grow them outside. The only reason you'd grow strawberries in the tunnel is to have them early. Um, if we had them in the tunnel, you'd have strawberries in May. And particularly with that fine weather we had in April, we probably would have had them quite early. But the trouble is they take over, they go mad in a tunnel with the heat and they finish flowering. The strawberry season is quite small and you you kind of, unless you've, you can afford to give up that much tunnel space to a, a crop that's not producing throughout the summer, um, you know, there's no need. We, sometimes we would put a cloche on part of the bed to bring them on early, or we've grown them in hanging baskets in the tunnel, again, just to get early crop. But uh, most of our fruit, we're not too pushed about the earliness of it, and a lot of it we're using for jam making anyway, so, you know, it, we'll have plenty of time to harvest as this month goes on. On one of your previous visits into the studio, we talked about herbs and growing herbs. And chives is a herb that has a beautiful purple flower and it's an, it's an edible flower. The flower is edible, yeah, and it would give that slight, you know, chives have, a, I suppose, a milder onion flavour. The flower would have a very slight onion flavour. And in something like a salad mix, the colour is lovely. It looks nice in the mix as well. Um, with those, I suppose, we in our herb garden, it's kind of ornamental as well as productive. So we don't mind that the chives flower. They're quite attractive and we will use the flower. But if you were growing chives just for cut herb, you really wouldn't want them to flower because the flowering stalk is quite tough. And if you, harv- if you harvest chives just by chopping from the base, you'd have to be picking out all the... The, the tough stalks if you were harvesting like large quantities but from our point of view it you know it's we it's more the look of it and you know we use the flower so we're not that worried about the flower on that but it doesn't affect the growing of the crop itself the, the chive plant continues to grow it doesn't affect it and you put those into your salad bags yeah which are completely organic all the leaves in yeah. it are organic all and, mixed leaves and yeah. you sell them on a friday at the market there and they keep for up to a week in the fridge they would yeah easily yeah there's there's nothing done with them they're harvested usually early in the morning before it gets too hot because it once it gets as you can feel now the heat in the tunnel um if you harvest it too late they could wilt um, so they're harvested early in the morning and they're just weighed and put into a bag and then that's it and then they go to the market stall and then I because ha- I get I use them all the time but you know they keep in the fridge for a week or more they're, they're really really good they don't there's nothing added like you would see in those puffed out bags so they're just perfect there's normal. no artificial air no there's nothing in them except the actual leaf we were talking to Joanna Blythman, who is an investigative food journalist in the UK. She has a book out called Swallow This, and she was on the show a few weeks ago, and she was talking about that very thing, about the false air being in the bags of salad leaves that you buy in the supermarket. And whenever you open the, the bag and put the leaves into the bowl, you come back to it half an hour later, and they've just completely Wilted. flopped. So it's great to, to see that yeah. you can come out here to the college just outside Drumcolliher and, and buy those those salad leaves yep. perfectly fresh another flower that you put into them is the calendula am I yes. saying that correctly yeah. well calendula some people call it marigold I I calendula is the proper name I stick with that it's that lovely orange flower it's really I think it's a great plant because it flowers all through the summer it's really bright vibrant color it's really cheerful I suppose um, but it is an edible flower and uh, again it, in the salad bag the colour is lovely with the leaves so it works really well but we it's also a good plant for attracting natural predators and beneficial insects so we would always grow it around the place um, it can get quite tall we would use it in our bouquets our cut flower bouquets and we also uh, calendula is a healing herb it's really a herb you know as, as well as a flower and it's got a lot of healing qu- qualities so we make a calendula herbal cream that's really healing and soothing um calendula would be used in you know like for nappy rash creams that sort of thing so very healing and soothing and eczema i know from personal experience with my my daughter at home who's eczema that we've used calendula cream for yeah, her it's calming and soothing yeah so that's good for that now you talked about the natural predators there which sounds very dangerous because the, the bees, obviously people know about bees and they need to be able to forage, but it's not just the bees that need to have the nice flowers and, and the pollination and everything. There, I mean, there's a lot of insects, a lot of beneficial insects. A lot of the time people think of insects as pests. There are a lot of pests, you know, there are insect pests that do cause a lot of problems in growing, you know, like green fly, aphids, slugs, um, certain beetles um, that that eat roots etc but there are also a lot of beneficial insects and there are insects that prey on other insects on the pests so there's things like that poached egg plant 
that you saw outside. Um, some people call it the Sinn Féin plant. It's got the yellow and white flower. Um, that attracts hoverflies, and hoverflies feed on green fly. So we would always plant things like that outside the door of the tunnel, inside the door of the tunnel, that will attract in the beneficial insect. And then once they're in the tunnel, they'll say, oh, look, and they'll move down along, and they'll deal with the green fly if we have it and whatever else. So they're quite good. But a lot of pollination, bees are very important for pollination and there are certain crops that are only pollinated by bees. But a lot of other insects do pollination as well. So it is important to have insects, you know, around and uh, pollinating the plants because for a lot of things, a lot of the plants, the crops we grow, you know, certain crops we grow, it's the leaf that you eat or it's the root. But with other ones, it's actually the seed pod so with tomatoes it's the fruit which contains the seed with you know peas and beans again it's the pod that contains the seed that we eat um, so you need all these um, uh, plants to be pollinated to keep things going you mentioned to me whenever we were doing the tour about they had you always have the doors open to the polytunnels but one year they put a mesh over the doors yeah the, the, um, w- ventilation is really important in a tunnel so we usually have half doors which allows the top to be open all the time we would never close it in the summer because the, the heat you can feel the heat in here today the heat that builds up and then the evaporation with moisture and it just it just provides the perfect breeding ground for moles and mildews and all sorts of problems so you need to have ventilation but if the mesh is used they covered the doors one day with a mesh they said oh it'll allow the air in but we'll keep pests out but it 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 would keep pests out but it also kept out pollinating insects so we had pepper plants growing they grew perfectly well they flowered they looked fabulous but not one pepper appeared because the flowers hadn't been pollinated so you do have to allow insects in they are quite important and the bees have their own homes here you've lots of hives yep we have our um, our apiary it's been coming on really well over the last few years and we haven't lost any bees i mean you know there's a lot of problems with bees with disease a lot based of course on um pesticides and herbicides that are used um of course we don't use anything like that here so it, it's safe but the because the bees again it's like you know everything we grow is a crop but the bees produce a crop because they produce honey which we want to have so in order to get the honey they need to forage and have you know plenty of good plants so we try to plant lots of things that bees like um, and you saw the phacelia, which we showed you, which is actually grown as a green manure, but it's a fabulous flower. And the bees love that. So we, we grow swathes of that, that they will forage on. Um, the kale that's gone to seed, we haven't cut it down yet because the bees are feeding on it. Um, we've put in lots of shrubs that flower early in the year, February, March, so that there's food if they come out, that there's something for them to have. Um, the willow, we have loads of willow grown here. Willow is hugely important for bees because the catkins come really early in the season. So, you know, it's all about the bees pollinate for us. I mean, they pollinate the apples. If, if we didn't have the bees, we wouldn't have any apples. But in turn, we're providing plenty of forage for them because they're going to provide us with lovely honey later in the season. And you have a great tip for anybody that might be suffering from hay fever. Yeah, but yeah most people who suffer from hay fever, it's, a, it's um, an allergic reaction to pollen. And it, a lot of people, of course, it comes with the grass cutting and all that grass releasing pollen at this, at this time of year but um, the if you eat local honey honey from your local area that will be the bees will have used all that pollen and when you eat the honey you build up immunity to that pollen so you shouldn't have the allergic reaction as much so local honey not just well honey is good for you anyway but if you can get local honey from a beekeeper in your general area the kind of plants that the bees get are the kind of plants that are probably going to give you the the allergic reaction. I think that's a great tip for anybody suffering from hay fever or that may suffer from hay fever whenever that weather comes about. If we ever get the weather, yes. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, it's been lovely to be out here at the college today to see all around it. And the website is organiccollege.com. That's right. If people want to go on. And you will be in the square in Drumcolliher every Friday. Every Friday. Or people can call here to the college. The shop is open. Um, well, anytime anyone comes in, somebody will open the shop or, or harvest sometimes people come in and they're looking for salad or spinach and they'll just be picked on the spot so. and you can't get fresher than that no you can't get fresher than that and we are taking applications for the course which will start next September and the details about that are on organiccollege.com yeah just contact the college yeah Sinead lovely to talk to you thanks okay. so much for Thank your you time Sharon.
You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break you heard me talking to Sinead Neeland in the Organic College in County Limerick. I had a lovely few hours there so thanks very much to Sinead for hosting the visit. And another place I'm hoping to visit this year is Viewmont House in Longford. The head chef of the VM restaurant, which is Georgina Campbell's Restaurant of the Year 2014, is Donegal man Gary O'Hanlon, who you'll know from tv Three show The Restaurant. He's in the kitchen there and he often appears on the 7 o'clock show with Martin Keane and Lucy Kennedy. He joins me on the phone now. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Gary, welcome to the show this evening. Thanks for having me. I missed you at Taste of Dublin because you had to go back to Viewmont House there in Longford because you had a wedding on that night. But tell us about the dishes that were being served in the Aldi Chalet. Yeah, well, they were really keen to focus on their uh, on their Irish range. So what we came up with was basically tables of four and we had a, a pork dish, a lamb dish, a chicken dish and a beef dish. So basically people came in we had 24 and then maybe another few sitting out in the garden and uh, basically everybody sat down so there was a, one of each dish at the table so some people were a bit greedy and didn't want to share but for the most part everybody kind of mixed and matched and uh, got a wee taster and, a, and if not a taste they at least got to see all, all of their, their prime range you know. The purpose of this really was for Aldi to showcase their produce and that they do use Irish farmers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it was a, a big thing that they wanted to showcase. I mean, I've known it from being around the industry and from shopping there for, for many years and, uh, and obviously working with them on the rest of the TV programme as well, that they, they have major presence in Irish farms and uh, they just I think they just wanted to relay that to the public and to show that they can go to a, a fine dining restaurant level with their own products as well. You mentioned there about Aldi sponsoring the restaurant, which is the TV3 programme. And uh, I, I suppose we really should mention Paolo Tulio, who sadly passed away recently. Yeah, yeah, very sad, yeah. Um, Paolo touched everybody, certainly, that, it, that he came near, and, and he was no different to me. You know, he was, he was one of the first people um, to give me a, a national review. And I know Stevie, who works in the, uh, on the restaurant, the main course, he owns pigs here in Dublin he actually gave him his first ever review for the pigs here and you know he just he just had a way of words he had a way with people um, he was a fabulous guy I mean we've known that he hasn't been well really like for the last number of years uh, I know whenever he showed up to the media launch last year like he'd lost a lot of weight he was on dialysis and sadly he, he, he just passed in you know but he'll be he'll certainly be, be missed you know it'll be kind of weird being around filming and finishing up I always got about half an hour of his time after service and had a wee drink and he would often talk through the dishes and what he you know what he felt and this and you know a great man he came across as a very kind and nice man i sadly never got to meet him or interview him he definitely would have been one of the people on my list that i would like to have met and interviewed for the show here and you're saying there about the reviews that he did for you and, and for Stephen, and he he just seemed to have that very generous way with him that he wanted people to do well and perform well and their dishes to be great yeah yeah he really really did you know and if he had a criticism um i'd never really felt like that you know what I mean he, he, he's one of these guys that if you know if he came across a restaurant that was bad or just wasn't worthy having been a restaurant to himself he, he just wouldn't have put it in the paper he, he wouldn't have stuck the knife in you know what I mean but if he felt that you were at a fine level and you're maybe cooking fine down at food and you were pushing him into the star he, he would you know he would, he would have a way just to, to dig in and, and make you stand up and he would he would push you on he had a way with different and that's the general consensus about you know from coming from a lot of chefs like that got reviewed by him and got reviewed well i mean he he never monocled at the same time like you know his words were it wasn't just all nicey nicey but he, he certainly had a way of you know making you feel that you were just right there but you could kick on as well you know filming the restaurant looks like it it must be great fun to do that show yeah yeah it, well, it's, it's good fun but it's hard hard work i mean Whenever I joined the program, that was the one thing I think it really shines through that 
it's really the celebrities' food. I mean, that's what you really sign on for. It's their stuff. Obviously, you're there to guide them and to help them when it comes to the tastings. Um, you you really get to have an opinion, but it's uh, it's very much every single little step that's done on every single dish has to be done by whatever guest is on, and uh, you know it can make for a long day. We could be in there anywhere up to 15, 16, 18 hours every day, and it's one day is one episode, you know. So it's uh, it's fun, but uh, as as you get into the second day and then the third day, we never fill them any more than three in a row. But uh, it starts if you get a hairy guest on the last on the last day, it can be quite challenging. That's for sure. But I love it. I absolutely love it. You know. And is it easy to juggle the commitments to that with your commitments with your full time job in Viewmont House? Yeah, it's great in the sense you know that that I'm closed Mondays and Tuesdays. Viewmont's closed Mondays and Tuesdays. I mean, and I, I mean, apart from doing Taste of Dublin, there, I mean, which is my first time off since I got married uh, over two years ago. Um, I read it, I, I'm never really in the restaurant. I mean, for all that I do, I tend to do everything on Mondays and Tuesdays. And the way the restaurant works is we'll arrive maybe on a on a Monday and uh, we meet and greet, go through everything. We've done a lot of planning up to that. And then, uh, you know, we fill them on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then we all, okay, all the studio gets wrapped down and then we come back and we fill them on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday again. So all I really miss is two Wednesdays and two Thursdays and I'm, I wake up on the Friday morning and I literally drive straight to Viewmount House and that's me for the whole weekend so it's uh, what it is it makes it tough for me it takes out a lot of personal time but it really only eats into four days of, uh, of Viewmount House you know and it, and it is midweek so it's a small sacrifice so it doesn't really affect it too much you know You've started doing some writing. It's a, a mini series called Kitchen Mechanics for McKenna's Guides.ie there on the, the internet. And something that you talk about in the first piece that you wrote is very much about the kitchen and the chef in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Well, they asked me to do it. And I was like, I mean, I was absolutely honoured uh, to be asked. I mean, Sally and John McKenna are. I mean, to me, they're just two of the most important people in, in Irish food. I mean, what, they, what they've what they done for me personally in Viewmount House, I'll be forever grateful. I mean, they've come and they're one of the first people, groups of people to ever recognize me way, way back whenever Viewmount's open in 08. And I would have great admiration for Sally and John and, and a lot of the writers that write for them. So to be asked, I was kind of like, are you sure you want me, you want me to do it? You know, but, but they were. They, they just says, look, we think, you know, we'll give you a wee crack at it and see what you come up with. So they just want me to do something on the kitchen mechanics, the machines, and the thing, the machines that really matter to a professional kitchen. So, so hopefully now the prep, that maybe just ups the ante for the next one, you know. So I don't know how I'm going to, what I'm going to write about, but I'll figure it out. Well, what I loved about that piece was that you mentioned a number of chefs that you admire and you'd said about the perfect chef has the mind of Kevin Thornton and the consistency of Ross Lewis. And you go through a few different characteristics, but you finish off with one, the finesse of Sharon Anderson. You must tell us who Sharon Anderson is. Yeah, you know, she's just a wee Donegal girl. And uh, Joe Hora was a guy that... uh, I brought in as, as as my right-hand man for the Prime Bialdi this week. Uh, he's going to be the new executive chef of the Milford Inn in Donegal. But he was in Harvey's Point for many, many years, and he came on this week, girl. But she's recent times, in the last year or so, she moved over to work under Heston Blumenthal as his pastry chef. And she's now in Melbourne in a six-month fat duck pop-up over there. And... Uh, I've been keeping a, keeping tabs on her from from a distance. I've never met her. She's, you know, a buddy on Twitter, and so we obviously have a mutual respect for each other, you know. But I follow a lot of these young cats like that are kind of coming up, you know. And I suppose maybe being a wee Donegal girl as well, uh, I would have a lot of love for her, you know what I mean, and would like to see her pushing on and doing well. And you know, just like I said there, you know, to keep keep an eye out for her because she is going to be one that doesn't. It's not every Tom Dick and Harry gets to be the pastry chef for Heston Blumenthal I'll tell you that so uh, one to watch for sure Well it's great to see that you take your role as Donegal food ambassador beyond the role of just the food there that it's about people from Donegal as well It's all about the people I mean you know you've got Sharon Harkin who was a Donegal girl uh, former pastry chef in Lake Van, and she's now in Baloo House uh, hopefully she'll be my new pastry chef someday soon as well I've been trying to coerce her coming down I had her working with me as well Kieran Sweeney, who's another 
top, top young talent. He, he runs the culinary counter and works out of Dublin. Formerly Thornton's in the greenhouse at Kerry Gard kid. And, uh, you know, I could go on and on. There's just a stack of incredible young cooks coming out of, coming out of Donegal. And guys that are that bit older than are established and just waiting to break. And any, any opportunity I get to shout and rave about them, you know, Christopher Malloy is another guy cooking up another kidney in the lemon tree. Like, these guys are fantastic. And, you know, whenever you, you get into the media and you're doing a lot more work and as the years go by and you might get a bigger and better reputation, people start to maybe take on board a wee bit more about what you say. And if I can help anybody else get a wee bag up out of Donegal, I'm absolutely going to do it, you know. You started your career there in the Rossapena Hotel in Downings, I suppose is the way people, the name that a lot of people would know that area by. Do you miss Donegal? Do you yearn to go back there at some stage to work and live? Uh, I, I love I love home and I love Donegal, but uh, you know, my, my wife is from Granard and last year we just built a new house in Granard, you know, and Viewmount House is in Longford Town, about 20 minutes away and you know, it's one of those jobs that I just came on and I was given a blank canvas. I treat it like I own it. I don't know James and Beryl Carney own it, but uh, it's been a labour of love. But, you know, I get home every five or six weeks. I haven't lived in Boston for about six years and haven't never really come home. Um, at least when I'm here now, I'm only two and a half hours away from Mammy and Daddy's and then Granny's up in Kerry Garden. And, you know, so I don't know. I would never ever rule out about having a business interest up there. I mean, I'd like to think that my, my wee daughter is here now and Granard and Longford is, is, is home but uh, but by all means you know whether it be maybe building a holiday home or having a business interest I, I, I would never ever rule out having something to keep bringing me back there but as I say with all the family I have I still have a lot of them all up around there you know I, I do tend to not let it go any longer than four or five weeks at a time before getting back you know well, before you go, let's talk very briefly about Viewmont House. I read on the website that your signature dish there is anise orange duck leg confit. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, it's one of those simple wee things. It's a, that's a wee dish I've, I've been cooking, maybe going back, it must be 15, 16 years. It's the first wee dish I did in Del- Devlin's in Boston. And it's basically, you know, when it comes to duck confit, it's... it's, it's one of these things that aren't all, all isn't all that good for you, you know what I mean? Like something that's braised in fat, absolute duck fat for like a few hours or whatever. But yeah, duck coffee is one of the simplest things in the world to make. Just a, a loaf and a lovely little salt cure on it. Oranges, star anise, tarragon, completely encasing it in rock salt and those ingredients for 24 hours and then slow cooking it in duck fat. And then I serve it with a little beetroot, mushroom, sherry and tarragon ragu and a little bit of grand morning as you and a little touch of truffle and i absolutely love it and i would urge anybody if they ever come across a view mount house and it's on the menu don't pass it you know well if that's not a good enough reason to go to view mount house i don't know what is gary it's been fantastic to talk to you this evening thanks so much for your time and continued success thank you bon appetit yummy grubs up delicious mmm That brings us sadly to the end of tonight's show. My sincerest thanks to you for tuning in and huge thanks to all of tonight's guests, Ross Lewis, Nicholas Byers, Declan Maxwell, J.R. Rial, Sinead Neeland and Gary O'Hanlon. I'll be back at the same time next week with a second helping show. Until then, have a great week and uh, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!